This episode of the Hollyfield Nutrition Podcast is brought to you by Inside Tracker. For 20% off your Inside Tracker purchase, visit the link in the show notes. Hello, everyone. My name is Holly Samuel. I am a registered dietitian, certified personal trainer, and I am your podcast host today. I am very excited about today's episode. I have wanted to record it for a little while now, but I was honestly having trouble with turning off the new Taylor Swift soundtrack uh, long enough to record this episode. So I'm really, you know, making a sacrifice for you all here by stopping listening to Midnight's to record this episode. Hopefully some of you can resonate with that. Um, but on today's episode, we're going to cover things I wish I knew for my first marathon um, or slash, you know, things that I took away from my first marathon, things that I learned from that. And this is also a compilation of what I've heard other people have learned and taken away or wish they had known for their first marathons, um, kind of pulled some people, talked to members of my team and other folks who have run you know, marathons in the past. Um, my first marathon was, gosh, it was in 20, 2016. Um, and it was the Maine Coast Marathon in Kennebunkport, Maine. Well, it starts in Kennebunkport and then it finishes in, uh, I believe, Biddeford um, at the University of New England. I'm honestly not sure if that race exists anymore. I know they still do a half marathon, but anyway, that was my first race. It was... Um, my senior year of undergrad college, and I got engaged at the finish line. So it was a pretty, pretty good day for me. Um, and really hard to beat that specific race, even if I keep getting faster. Um, I finished my first marathon in, I think, four hours and four minutes, something like that. It was just a little over four hours, 405, something like that. I personally didn't have a time goal. I really had no idea like what times in the marathon were or meant. I didn't have any standards. Um, I knew that Boston qualifying was a thing, but I didn't really know like by how much or what the time standards were. Um, I was really just in it to complete my first marathon. I'd fallen in love with half marathons um, the previous year, and I ran my first um I think in the fall of 2015. And then I ran my second in the fall of 2015. And then I ran my third in the fall of 2015. And then I was like, I got to sign up for a marathon. So that's kind of my progression into distance running. It escalated kind of quickly. Um, and I was a marathoner in 2016 and did my second about a year later at the Philadelphia Marathon in 2017. And I took about 30 minutes off of my time. So I did, you could say, learn a lot from my first marathon experience. And it's something that I knew I wanted to be able to help other people with and just like talk about all the time. Because as you know, running is one of my favorite subjects. And I love to chat about it. So we're going to kind of break today's topic into three different segments. So we're going to talk about what I wish I had known slash what I learned from my first marathon in the fueling department. So obviously, I know a thing or two about that. And we're also going to talk about training. So like in just the training logistics department, and then more of like a miscellaneous mindset recovery um, kind of, you know, category as well. I had a hard time titling that one because I just had more thoughts and I wanted to put it into one category. So let's dive into these three categories. 
All right. So back when I ran my first marathon and just was like starting to train for distance races, I was, you know, finishing up my undergraduate degree in dietetics. So I wasn't a dietitian yet, but I knew some stuff, you know, (laughs) about nutrition and about science behind nutrition. But in the fueling department, I really didn't know much about nutrition for sports or nutrition for runners. It was something that definitely fascinated me. And once I started to get more into running, I started to learn more about it. But you guys, Instagram wasn't really like thriving yet with all this nutrition knowledge. It was honestly a lot of misinformation and Fitspo accounts that was probably more damaging <laughs> than helpful. Um, there were really no like Instagram dietitians for runners specifically. Um, there were some blogs, but not a ton of like running specific blogs. Although I do remember following a few that would talk about training for races, like um, recreational runners themselves, or some of them even, rec- you know, recreational runners who are also dietitians. But um, there just wasn't a ton of information out there. I looked at, you know, Googling stuff. I went online. I looked at Pinterest. Pinterest was a bit more popular back then, but again, really probably not the most helpful information. Um, unless I happened to stumble across a helpful blog on Pinterest, there really weren't much podcast episodes happening. There were some sports nutrition books that I read by like the original sports dietitian, Nancy Clark being one of them. And I honestly, I had like one other friend in the running community who ran. Um, I didn't really know that many people who ran. Um, and he knew some stuff about sports nutrition, but not a ton. So, you know, there weren't that many resources out there like there are right now, which is why I wanted to create my business just to help you guys out a little bit. I think learning some things the hard way is really valuable, but also, you know, if you can find yourself less nauseous and less needing a bush to go to the bathroom, um, that's probably not a bad thing. You know, like if we can avoid that for you (laughs) by giving you some good information, that just, that's a win for everyone, including the owner of those bushes. So when it comes to fueling, what I wish I had known, um, I wish I had known how much more I was going to need to eat. I was really, you know, coming out of a period of my life where I didn't have a great relationship with food or body image and running really helped change that for me because I started to see food less as the enemy or something to make me smaller and more as something that I needed to capitalize on and eat and fuel with in order to get more out of myself as a runner. Um, Once I especially I transitioned from half to full marathon, I started to realize that like, you can't just really wing it, you know, as easily. You can't get away with as much when it comes to not doing nutrition correctly. A lot of people can, but it doesn't feel very good. Um, and I could get away with, you know, not really fueling a half marathon, not taking much in terms of fluids or gels or anything like that. But when it came to the marathon, I kind of had a feeling going into that training that like, I was going to need to figure this out. Um, And I had been to some running stores to get like fitted for running shoes. And I looked at sports nutrition products. And I, you know, remember thinking to be really transparent here as a new dietitian in the making, like, do people really eat this stuff while they're running? Like, it just seems like it's a lot of sugar. Like there was some misinformation about, you know, sugar being bad for runners. So I was a little confused by that because in terms of the science that I knew, I was like, actually, it seems like it would be a good idea to have these things. But it kind of goes against the grain in terms of sports nutrition is really not the same as nutrition for the sedentary population. And I had learned in school so far a whole lot about nutrition for the sedentary population. Didn't learn a whole lot about sports nutrition. So that's something I wish I had known is that, yeah, they kind of contradict each other and that's okay. Like 
the science that you learned in your schooling, Holly, and it making sense in your head, like trust that, <laughs> um, you know, and go for the sports nutrition products. So that was one thing I wish I had known. I wish I had known that I was really going to have to eat a whole lot more. And I did kind of learn that along the way, especially carbohydrates in order to feel good in the marathon and in marathon training. And also that, you know, sports nutrition, it's not the same as sedentary population nutrition. And that's okay. In fact, I learned that nutrition is a whole pillar of your training, um, especially when it comes to marathon training. Like I said, we can't get away with as much. You know, if your glycogen stores are depleted all the time, especially if you're a woman, you're going to get injured. You're going to feel super burnt out. You're going to run into gut issues. And I ran into all of those things, <laughs> to be honest. My first marathon, I just didn't know what I didn't know. Um, and I was trying to learn it on the fly while being in school. And it was really challenging. Um, I remember thinking, you know, before I was a runner, seeing runners on the side of the road, like taking candy or taking like those gels. And I remember thinking, honestly, super transparent here, like, why would they eat while they're running? Aren't we running to burn calories, you know? Um, so I very much had that mindset, you know, even early into like my schooling. Um, but again, marathon really helped me change that because you can't have that mindset and do well in the marathon. <laughs> um, some people can do, you know, relatively well, but you're going to do so much better if you shift your mindset. So I really wish that I had known all of the things I teach you guys that we need to take in, you know, 60 to 90 plus grams of carbohydrates per hour. And that's going to work best taking it in 20 to 30 gram doses every 30 minutes or so. And that um, we need to eat, you know, certain things before our runs and after our runs. That's something I also wasn't super clear on and learned a lot about when I was training for the marathon because I learned pretty quickly the hard way that if you eat the wrong thing before a run, it's not going to go well for you, right? <laughs> um, and on that note too, things I wish I had known about getting into marathoning for my first one is that talking about pooping, talking about having bathroom issues just as part of the badge of honor I think we all wear as, as runners. In my opinion, you don't become a runner when you run a certain distance or a certain time or anything like that. You become a runner once you, you become an endurance, like distance runner, especially once you can relate to the bathroom struggle, because <laughs> it means that you've gone on enough runs probably where you've probably had the runs or <laughs> had some nausea at some point and been like, what's that about? How do I, how do I fix that? Because that kind of stinks. The other nutrition thing that I wish I had known for my first marathon and honestly my second marathon as well, I wish I had known this, um, is that hydration does not just mean water. <laughs> um, hydration means water, but also electrolytes. And you can be dehydrated even if you're drinking enough water because your electrolyte fluid imbalance is off. So I didn't really understand that concept at all, especially for my first marathon. I'm trying to think what I even did. I think I carried a handheld like 12 ounce water bottle and I think I drank it and I, it was water. And I think it was like gone by like definitely the halfway point. And I don't think I even took from the aid stations. And I think what else did I do for my first marathon? I think I had some Sour Patch Kids. That was kind of it. <laughs> so it was definitely low on sodium. Luckily, it was a pretty mild day, so I was kind of okay um, in terms of I didn't get super nauseous, but I definitely had a lot of GI issues as a new marathoner um, in terms of just having a lot of like loose bowel movement issues and urgency and you know all that good stuff that I'm sure a lot of you have experienced. So that's another thing I wish I knew. I wish I had known that 
water and electrolytes equal hydration. We need to have at least 300 milligrams of sodium per hour when we are exercising. And sodium, much like sugar, is not the enemy, especially for sports nutrition. In fact, we absolutely need to have it. And some people need to have way more of it than would ever be deemed as quote unquote acceptable by sedentary person nutrition. (laughs) So that was another thing is that, again, some of these things I had learned, they really contradicted what I was learning through sports nutrition research. And I was having a hard time letting go of my bias to accept those things, right? So I think a lot of you can probably relate to that. You're like, okay, I hear all of this sports nutrition information, but it really seems to contradict all the other nutrition things I've ever known as fact that I'm not even sure are correct because maybe they're rooted in diet culture or maybe they are truly just for the sedentary population. But I'm having a hard time letting go of that and wrapping my head around sports nutrition. One of the biggest things, again, that I think I learned from my first couple of races is that you really need to identify yourself as a runner and as an athlete if you are running and if you are completing these events. It doesn't matter your time. It doesn't matter how fast or slow you quote unquote are. Um, What matters is that you identify as a runner because then you can start to embrace these sports nutrition principles that seem so contradictory to everything you've heard before. And that's something that took me, I think, a little bit of time. Um, I was like, I'm a marathoner and I'm a half marathoner and I'm an athlete. Yeah, but I was like, I'm not a real runner. I'm not like a fast runner, you know? Um, and that took a little while for me to be like, Oh, this applies no matter what the time is. So hydration, it's not just water. So moving on to, um, kind of another caveat of this topic is like whole foods, whole foods are so good for us. Right. But When it comes to engineered sports nutrition products to take during our long runs, those are literally made for exactly what you're trying to use it for, to meet recommendations, to be tolerated well. Um, This is a really hard concept for me as well during my first marathon training experience, and honestly, my second one too, is that I really didn't want to use sports nutrition products. I was still getting hung up on there's a lot of sugar in these, there's dyes, I'm not sure what's good for you or not. I'm not really sure how to digest (laughs) puns, this information. Um, Even as a dietitian, even as an emerging nutrition professional who was learning about sports nutrition, that was another hard one for me to wrap my head around was dyes, sugar, not really sure if I want to do sports nutrition products, wouldn't it be the cool dietitian thing to do to try and fuel with like real foods or maybe even like candy? Cause it's honestly cheaper. And I was poor, um, when I first was getting out of dietetic school. So that was another thing is that I wish I had embraced sports nutrition products because they truly are really convenient and they're engineered to be tolerated well and do for us exactly what we're asking of them. I think I fueled most of my beginning races with Sour Patch Kids, like in the like the trick or treat single serve size baggies. And by the way, those are awesome. Like you can definitely fuel effectively with those. But I was really doing it for the wrong reasons. I was doing it because I was kind of afraid of gels, um, and I wanted things to be as clean, quote unquote, as possible. And that really took a while um, to for me to really get over and reframe. Now, I absolutely love sports nutrition products. Um, big fan of them. I encourage my clients to use them if they need to use Whole Foods or if they want to use candy or Sour Patch Kids or other things like that. 
I can absolutely teach them how to do it, but it's probably going to be a lot harder, to be honest, to meet your nutrition needs, especially your hydration needs doing it that way, rather than just using the sports nutrition products. And you can absolutely use sports nutrition products that are made with more whole food sources like Huma gels or spring energy or applesauce um, based type things. And those are cool too, if you feel like it's easier just to tolerate in terms of how they taste. Um, and I can take pretty much anything now, but those tend to be my favorite because I like the way they taste genuinely. So that was another thing in the nutrition department that I wished I had known. Now let's move on to the training department. And honestly, this is something I'm still learning so much about all the time, obviously nutrition too, but especially as a, you know, a personal trainer, um, you know, training really evolves. Like we all need the basics. We all want to do what works, but, um, yeah, there's so many things. So let's just dive in. So first off, I wish that I had known that it's okay to run most of your runs embarrassingly slow. And I'm not putting a pace on that. I just mean compared to what we actually want to run. <laughs> it's okay to go slower than that. You don't need to run all your runs at marathon pace in order to run a marathon at marathon pace. And that is mind blowing. I think for most beginner runners, because you're like, but I've never practiced it before. How do I know I can do it? Right. And for those of you who have done a marathon and you've completed, you know, other races and you've raced them, meaning you have run them faster than your easy pace, you know that it's possible, but it can be really daunting at first. Right. So I really wish I had known that I didn't need to run all of my runs at marathon pace um, and that I could polarize my training. I could run a lot of my mileage a lot easier than I was running it. Um, and I could also throw in some speed efforts and be able to have the energy to do them because I went easier on my easier days. I think I ended up running my marathon a little bit slower, um, in terms of minutes per mile than I ran most of my runs. I was running most of my, you know, runs and training for my first marathon around like eight minute to nine minute pace. Um, and I was just, you know, feel good running. Like I wasn't really pushing it all the time. It didn't feel like I was pushing it all the time. Um, but I think I ended up completing my first marathon around like 9.15 minute pace, 9.05, 9.10, something like that. So it was a little slower. So, you know, training works. Like we can't be running all of our mileage at or faster than our marathon pace. In reality, I probably should have been running most of my runs around 10 to 11 minute pace. Um, and then probably would have run my marathon a little bit faster and been a bit more recovered, maybe wouldn't have gotten injured like I did, which I'll get to. Um, so that's something that I really wish that I had known. And I think what's really challenging for new runners to, uh, um, I guess, discover is that they have different gears. This is something I talk a lot about with my athletes who are trying to understand how to race distances rather than just complete distances. And I think for your first marathon, think for your first half marathon, your first distance, like the first time you've covered any distance, whether it's a mile at 5k, half marathon, full marathon, ultra marathon. I really, I'm a huge believer because I did have this strategy as a newer runner that you don't need a time goal. Your real, your goal should just be to have fun and complete the distance and be proud of yourself um, so that you have a good experience and want to do it again. Um, I don't think that understanding the different gears is really necessary as you're training for your first marathon. But if you want to stay in the sport and you want to get faster, 
then it can be really, really exciting to figure out what gears you have. And by that, I mean, start to understand what easy pace feels like versus, you know, 5k pace versus 10k pace versus threshold pace versus half marathon pace, full marathon pace, um, you know, steady state pace, and that you have all these different gears. Because I think when we're new runners, we think we can either run slow or we can run fast. And when you're running fast, you're sprinting. <laughs> and when you're running slow, you know, you're just kind of jogging along um, and not thinking about it. And I know when we first start running, it's probably, what do you mean? I'm either running or I'm not running. <laughs> like all running is hard to me. None of it's quote unquote easy. And I respect that too. And totally remember how that feels. Um, so that's something that I don't necessarily wish I had known for my first marathon, but it's something I learned between my first marathon and my second marathon, for sure. My second marathon, which is the one that I took 30 minutes off in Boston qualified for the first time. Um, basically what changed is that I did workouts. I did more mileage at an easier pace and I found those different gears through workouts and I practiced what marathon pace feels like. I practiced tempo efforts and I practiced going slower on days I was supposed to go slower because I followed a training plan that was structured that way. Um, so that's something that I learned from my first marathon is that we have different gears. Another thing that I, I don't remember if I embraced or not, but I think I've started to embrace it just as I've become more seasoned is knowing where the hills are on your course can be really helpful, but also embracing them in training. It's really helpful. Um, I know a lot of the times runners are scared of hills. They're scared of doing hills. They're scared of incorporating hills into what's supposed to be a more quality session of their workout. So if you have like a marathon pace tempo effort, you're like, I'm not going to do it on any hills. I'm going to try and do it, you know, on a flat surface because I'm worried if I don't nail the pace down. And I really wish that more runners just embraced, oh, there's a hill. I'm going to run up it and then I'm going to run down it. And I'm going to understand that my pace might get a little slower going up and a little faster going down. But as long as I keep the effort the same, I'm still getting the same intention out of the workout for the most part. So that's something that I learned from my first marathon is that you can't let every hill destroy you um, on course and you can't leave every race going, oh, they said it was going to be flat, but there was a hill and I'm blaming everything on the hill. You just got to practice running hills and training. <laughs> it really comes down to, if you see a hill and you find yourself wanting to run away from the hill, you got to make yourself go up that hill. That's something I really learned probably even more so in my most recent Boston Marathon training cycle because I knew there'd be hill hills on course and that turning away from hills and training wasn't going to do me any favors. <laughs> so know where the hills are on course and embrace them in training. Another thing that I think is hard for so many first-time marathoners and half-marathoners and ultra marathoners to conceptualize. And it's still something that I think, even if you've done this distance before, it can be hard to conceptualize is that you don't need to run the full distance in training in order to know that you can complete the distance on race day. So if you're, you know, in your first marathon training cycle now, and you're like, I'm only running up to 16, you know, 18, 20 miles, in training, how the heck am I going to run 26.2 on race day? Like that just doesn't make sense to me. That's something that I got nervous about in my training cycle. Um, and I, I think I had a 22 miler 
on my schedule for my first marathon training cycle. That was the longest that I had ran. And I remember that day, I remember getting to the end of that 22 miler and being like, I could totally go another 4.2 miles right now and just do a marathon today. I didn't, I held myself back, but in hindsight, I also didn't need to do that 20 mile, 22 miler in order to know that I could complete a marathon. Um, so that's something I really want to emphasize your long runs are a really important part of your training, but what is the reason that the training works and that you're going to be prepared to cover that distance on race day is that it's not just about the long runs. If we're doing it right. It's also about the cumulative fatigue that your legs are experiencing in your short runs each week. And with back-to-back efforts and with piling training weeks on top of each other without significant rest, that's what teaches your body to adapt to that stress so that it's prepared to go the distance on race day, especially after you've kind of tapered for two to three weeks and allowed yourself to have some extra rest. That is such a hard concept uh, for, I think, so many runners, but that's a takeaway that I got from my first race is, Hey, you don't need to cover 20 miles, 22 miles, 26 miles in order to run your first marathon. You probably just need to run for up to two and a half to three hours total. And whatever the mileage looks like, um, you know, that's probably going to be enough to get you to the finish line. If you're someone who is covering less than 16 miles in three hours, then you need to follow a training plan that has you do back to back longer efforts so that you're still accumulating that fatigue on the legs. Another thing that I wish that I had known in my first marathon training cycle and things that I learned is that during the taper period, so this is what we refer to as the two to three weeks after your longest long run or hardest week of the training cycle. Um, For a marathon, it should be two to three weeks. For a half marathon, it's probably two weeks Oh man, those shorter runs during that taper, you guys, you probably see the training plan and you're like shorter runs, like that's going to feel easier. And I'm going to be so well rested by race day. Oh man. Sometimes during the taper, those shorter runs feel pretty hard. (laughs) Um, and that can be really tough mentally because it makes you think, am I actually ready to do this? Like, am I going to be able to do this? Oh my God, this three miler feels challenging. Am I going to be able to do 26.2? Like, how does this work? I don't understand. Tapering stupid. I'm not even going to do it. I'm going to forget how to run if I taper or lose all this fitness. (sighs) Anyone thinking that? (laughs) Anyone thought that in the past? I know I did. Um, The taper's funky. The taper is a period of time where your cumulative fatigue that you've built throughout the training cycle is catching up to you. The taper is meant to help your body do some deeper healing and deeper recovery. I did an episode about a year ago on taper crazies. So if you want to scroll back and get a whole scientific breakdown of the taper, go ahead and check that out from a year ago. Um, But it works. You know, you probably won't feel your best in the taper. (laughs) Um, You're probably going to feel like you're going to forget how to run. You're probably going to feel like you're losing fitness. You're probably going to feel like things feel harder and that even maybe goal pace feels harder if you're someone who is racing this marathon or this half marathon. I remember feeling like, you know, oh my gosh, do I need, like, I needed, I felt like I needed to test myself on each run, like go a little faster just to make sure I could still do it. You know what I'm talking about? Um, Don't do that. (laughs) Um, You're just going to burn yourself out before your race and be a bit overtrained. So something I wish I had known and that I learned is that during the taper, your runs might not feel good, but it doesn't mean you're not going to have a great race. The taper is just doing its job. Let's take a minute to hear a word from our sponsor for this episode, which is Inside Tracker. 
I love having Inside Tracker as a sponsor of the podcast. I have been using Inside Tracker for, I don't even know, three, four years now. Um, they have just been such a key cornerstone to me understanding more about my own body and being able to help my clients on a more deeper level live healthy athletic lives and reach their athletic goals. Inside Tracker was created by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, Tufts, and MIT. Inside Tracker provides personalized health analysis and clear recommendations plus an action plan on how to live healthier longer. And they calculate your biological age, the rate at which you're aging compared to your chronological age, as well as ways to lower your biological age via their algorithm. And the thing I love the most about Inside Tracker is that they give you recommendations on things you can control to optimize your health, like nutrition, uh, supplementation if you have deficiencies and need a little bit of support there, workouts, and other lifestyle choices. And I really love using Inside Tracker as a way to just check under the hood, you know, see how things are running um, when things are going well. And also if I'm not feeling my greatest and then be able to identify the root cause of why that is happening and put together a plan to feel better for myself and for my clients. So if you want to save 20% off on your next Inside Tracker purchase, you can visit the link in the show notes. This kind of gets into our miscellaneous now, but Body glide, body glide, body glide, body glide, anti-chafing things. <laughs> this is something that I learned very quickly as a half and full marathoner when I was beginning that journey. Um, okay, and something I want to say here too is that I think a lot of people think if they have to use body glide, like it means like, oh, I must be like a big runner or I must, you know, people, other people don't experience chafing in these places like I do. Everyone could use body glide. It really doesn't matter who you are. Um, you could use it probably somewhere, whether it's body glide. I really like gold bond anti-chafe. Um, Vaseline's great. I've seen people use body butter before. Whatever it takes. Um, body glide is something that can change your life. Highly recommend. Put it everywhere. I've put it under the chest area so that sports bras don't chafe under the arms, between the legs for sure. I even do that when I'm not running, to be honest. Um, all over my feet <laughs> so that they don't get blisters. Uh, where else do I put it? Like if I'm wearing a hydration vest, I'll put it around my shoulders. Um, guys, I know we'll put it in guy places. There's so many places you can put body glide or any anti-chafe cream or stick and you won't regret it. That should be its whole category by itself. So in terms of the marathon itself, <laughs> um, there's a couple things that I also wish that I had known is that pacing a marathon. <laughs> this is something that I think sometimes we just have to learn by trial and um, crash and burn, if you will. But do not go out too fast in a marathon. You should feel pretty good on the start line. You've, you've tapered, you've fueled up, hopefully. And that's something I could have added to the beginning section is that carb loading. That's not something that I understood for my first marathon and have since learned quite a bit about, obviously. But anyway, you should feel pretty good going out into the first couple miles of your marathon. It's going to be very easy to want to go out too fast. You're going to want to be passing people. Don't do that. Go out slow. Let people pass you. And then you're going to be able to finish strong. I should do a whole podcast episode on the art and science of negative splitting a marathon because it's something that I think a lot of people want to do, but have a lot of trouble actually executing. And it's something I've done many times, actually. Um, 
So maybe I should do a podcast episode on that. But anyway, so pacing your marathon. Don't go out too fast. Let people pass you. You won't regret it. You're going to be passing them again at the finish line. Um, Also, (laughs) one of the biggest things that I learned from doing multiple marathons, so this is something I wish I had known from my first marathon, but I didn't necessarily learn until several marathons later, is that you can feel really bad (laughs) at certain points of a marathon. And the human thing to think and do is, oh, I'm starting to feel bad. The pain's coming. Like, I'm doomed. This is how the rest of the race is going to go. Wrong. Marathons are so long (laughs) that sometimes you can have these rough patches where you feel bad or you don't feel great, but then you can feel good again later in the race. So knowing this and experiencing this can allow you to think, okay, I'm feeling kind of not great right now. Now me would say, let me see if I need to fuel or hydrate better because that probably has something to do with it. And this doesn't mean I'm damned. I might feel good again later. So let me just try to get through this rough patch and see it as temporary. Um, That's something that I wish I had known for my first marathon because I've heard people say they started feeling bad, you know, at mile eight, which is rough. That's a rough That's going to be a rough day if you feel bad at mile eight and you think you're going to continue to feel bad for the whole race. That's going to make people want to quit. I've also, you know, heard people obviously say, oh, they feel kind of rough at mile 16, but then mile 20, they're feeling good again, which is awesome. I've experienced that too. So know that just because you feel bad now doesn't mean you're going to feel bad forever. Um, You know, adjust your nutrition, adjust your hydration, fuel, hydrate, see if that makes you feel better. And if it does, great. If it doesn't, you know, use your mental tricks because know that this might be a rough patch and not just an entire rough race. Even elites swear off marathoning while they are marathoning. This is something that I wish I had known for my first marathon because I've actually heard multiple elite athletes say this just on like interviews and in articles and whatnot is that at some point during most of their races, they're like, I'm never doing this again. Um, And know that most people think that. So if you go into your first marathon and you're like, this is terrible. Why do people do this? Why did I sign up for this? This is awful. I'm never doing this again. I'm going to be a one and done and that's going to be it. That's how most people feel at some point during their race. It's not just you. We're all a little crazy. A lot of us do do it again. Um, So know that if you're having those thoughts, it doesn't mean you're a failure. And it doesn't mean that you're not cut out for this. It just means that marathons are really freaking hard. Um, I definitely felt that way in the last 5K of my first marathon. I definitely slowed down a positive split that race like a champ. Um, And there were a couple of hills at the end. And there were some sections of that race where I was like totally alone. And my I think my phone died. And I was just like, oh, this is terrible. I'm never doing this again. Like half marathons are so much better. Like this is just way too long. I need a break. This is awful. Not having a good time, especially because I wasn't fueled or hydrated. Then I got engaged at the finish line and my legs weren't that sore the next day. And I was like, all right, I could probably do that again. I could probably do that better next time. What if I could do this? So that's a very normal progression of thoughts to have for your first race. I I know people who do marathons and they're like one and done. I am never doing that again. That was horrible. Most of those people um, did not embrace all of these things in terms of preparing their body for marathons by training well, by recovering hard with nutrition, by fueling and hydrating properly during their race, and by having some good mindset tricks. And it's hard to learn that before your first marathon. Like you're going to make mistakes. 
But the one and doneers could probably have used some of that information to at least have had a better chance to give themselves a positive experience and maybe want to do it again. But also know that you don't have to do marathons to be like a real runner or anything like that. It's not personally my favorite distance. The half marathon's my favorite distance, personally, if I had to pick. Um, but I do like marathons. The challenge is pretty sweet. So know that even elites swear off marathons at some point in their race. So if that's you, it's not just you. And furthermore, on the training cycle, looking back on it as a whole, I wish I had embraced more um, and really believed in that if I took an extra rest day or if I had to cut a run short or cut a run completely, even if it was a long run, that it wasn't going to make or break my entire training cycle. For my first marathon, I dealt with IT band syndrome, um, pretty like stabbing um, IT band syndrome for, I think I st- it started like around my 13 or 14 mile long run. So it's pretty early. Um, it was like as soon as I switched gears from half to full marathon training in the winter, it was like, what? My body was like, what are you doing? Um, and this is going to bleed a little bit into the next section of things I wish I had known, which is miscellaneous and is, is that marathoning is going to make you, um, specialized in a sport. It's going to make you more of a runner just because you're running for longer distances. And that means your body is going to have to adapt to running longer distances. And it's going to bring out more imbalances because of this. Whenever we specialize in something, we create imbalance. And that's not always a bad thing. That's what allows us to be specialized as an athlete. But if it's something that's causing you pain, injury, or inefficiency, that's something that you need to address and you need to address it early before it becomes an injury. And kind of bleeding into the next section here, we can just keep going. Um, You know, taking an extra rest day or adjusting your training plan doesn't mean you failed and it doesn't mean that you're not going to meet your goals at all. Um, That's something that as a type A person, I kind of looked at my training plan and I was like, I must follow this to AT or else I will not do this race. Um, and that's just not true. It's very black and white thinking. And as you get more experienced as a runner, you have to do a lot of gray area thinking. So that's something that I wished I had known. On that same note, physical therapy, chiropractics, massage therapy. Oh my God. Having at least one of these people in your corner um, is going to be so helpful as you get into marathoning. Um, It's just really helpful to have a sports professional that you can reach out to when something hurts. Because chances are, statistically, at some point in your training cycle or in your career as a runner, something's going to hurt. You're going to get injured. Something's going to happen, even if you're trying to do everything right, because the sport's really hard and it's really repetitive. So that was something that I wish I had known. When I got my IT band syndrome diagnosed, I got it diagnosed by an orthopedist because I was like, I must need to go, you know, to a sports doctor um, and get, you know, some sort of imaging done. I don't know how they diagnose sports injuries. So that's what I did. It was like a month to get in to see the doctor. The appointment was like 10 minutes long. And he was like, you have IT band syndrome. Um, here's one stretch you can do. And like, maybe don't run anymore. That's what he said to me. And I was like, wait, that was like, that was it. That was useless. Um, so then I ended up doing some Googling, finding some online physical therapists and just some exercises and some, um, like release things that I could do at home on my own. And it, it totally fixed it. Um, I don't even have to go to PT to fix that. So know that for sports injuries, your go-to person should probably be a physical therapist who's a sports physical therapist. Um, Some chiropractors can do this for you as well. 
And having a massage therapist can be really helpful, especially if like um, you tend to have a lot of tight areas in your body or if you tend to be someone who sits a lot for work. Um, So that's something I wish I'd known from my first marathon because that would have saved me a lot of headaches (laughs) and money um, for going to that particular doctor and having it be basically a waste of my time. Another thing I wish I had known for my first marathon training experience is that stretching, foam rolling, and strength training are the trifecta that are going to keep you in one piece, that are going to put Humpty Dumpty back together. Um, That's not really something I understood at all. I didn't really know much about that. I thought stretching was yoga, and I was like, yoga is not intense enough for me. Um, (laughs) I've since changed my mind on that for sure. I love yoga and stretching and mobility and strength training. I love it all. But um that's something that I wish I had just done more of. I didn't understand like foam rollers were kind of a newer tool when I was first starting running. Like not everyone had a foam roller or knew what a foam roller was. Like they really only sold the ones that were like truly made of foam. Like they didn't have any other like of these weird tools that you could use as a foam roller. Um, so once I kind of got one and I started using it, I was like, Oh, this is super helpful to have. Like, Now I do get why people have these. Now I do need one of these. Now I do understand why taking care of my body is important because I want to take care of my body so it can keep running. I wish I had had that mentality a little bit earlier in my running career. And here I am saying it to you guys in case you haven't figured that out yet. (laughs) Um, Having a foam roller, having a mobility routine, you know, is really important, especially after your runs are over or even just at night before you go to bed. Strength training. Strength training is important. When I started running more, I started neglecting strength training a little bit more and I started riding horses less. Um, If you guys have followed me for a while, you know that I used to compete horses um, pretty um, seriously in for decades um, as a part of my career. And I was a lot stronger, to be honest, when I was riding horses. Like, it's just, that's a different sport than running. Um, It's very intense. It's very physically challenging. It's very mentally challenging, um, but it's in different ways than running is. So I was a lot stronger. So when I stopped doing that as much and I started running more, I got weak. I got so weak. And I really wish I had kept up my strength training more at first and not neglected my lower body. Um, I was kind of afraid to work out my lower body because I didn't want to be sore and have to run while sore because I didn't know if that was okay. So I really wish that I had capitalized on that earlier because I used to be, I'm still a pretty strong person, but I, I did let it get away from me. And that I think is why I got injured. (laughs) Um, as soon as I stopped riding, that's when my IT band got injured because I was doing my easy runs a little too fast. I wasn't fueling quite properly. I wasn't strength training or as strong as I used to be. And I hadn't quite embraced mobility work. So those little things, they add up quite a bit. That's something I wish I had known. Another thing I wish I had known is that active recovery is not a bad thing. If you are on your rest day and you don't move at all, that might be necessary. Sometimes we all need those days, but for the most part, motion is lotion, right? We need to move. Um, So I wish I had embraced like walking a little bit more and seeing active recovery as something that still quote unquote counts in terms of my overall wellness. I definitely used to think, oh, if I'm not running, like, it doesn't even count as exercise. Like it's, it's useless, but that's just not true. I couldn't feel more differently now. Um, so I wish I had embraced that a little bit more because I definitely could have done more of that. Another thing that I wish I had known is that, you know, 
people aren't going to understand um, <laughs> what you're doing. There's going to be people who are like, why are you doing this to yourself? This is really like a lot and crazy. And you're kind of a lot and crazy. And I don't know why you're going to bed early. I don't know why you don't want to come out with us. I don't understand why you're running so much. I don't understand why you're going to wake up early before we do stuff so that you can get your long run in. There's going to be people who are just not going to understand and who are going to turn their noses up at you and not support you. Luckily, I didn't have that many people in my life like that. And there's going to be people who think you're freaking awesome um, and who tell you that you're freaking awesome and you need to keep those people close because they're going to help motivate you. But there's also going to be people who you're inspiring so much and you don't even realize it because they don't say a dang thing to you. Um, I've had a lot of those people reach out to me, you know, more recently who are like, wow, I just, you know, I've really seen this take off for you. And like, you never used to even be a runner. Like, that's so cool. Um, now I'm a runner and I want to be a runner. And that's really cool. That's why I love the running community, which is another bullet point that I have here, is because the running community is everyday people, right? At one point, most of us weren't runners, and then we became runners. And then we all have this thing in common, and we all kind of get it. And we can be all different levels, but we can still run the same race and the same distances. It's so cool to be a part of the running community. Once I signed up for my first half and full marathons, and I was kind of trying to find out more information about this, because I only really had one running friend, um, I uncovered this running community. And I was like, wow, this is really cool. I really like the running community. It feels pretty welcoming for the most part. I know not everyone agrees with that, but coming from the horse community, the equestrian community, trust me, running is a way more welcoming than the equestrian community, in my humble opinion. Um, and I was like, it's really cool that the work that you put in, you typically get the benefits from, which isn't always true in other sports where you're a part of a team or where you're riding a horse and the horse has a mind of its own and the horse can get injured <laughs> or the horse can spook at something stupid and ruin your entire day. Um, you know, I really liked that I had a bit more control over running and that I could really see the benefits from it by putting in the work. I've been a hard worker for most of my life. So I really liked the concept that in the running community, we all understand that you can put in a lot of hard work and then also see a lot of great benefit. Um, that's just like that that's just that positive feedback is so helpful, right? To keep us motivated. So the running community is really fun. Also, something that I have learned um, from working with so many clients in the running community is that again, remember guys, running is supposed to be fun. <laughs> running is something that most of us do for fun. Most of us are not getting paid to run professionally. Running is a part of my job because I talk about it all day, but it's still not what I'm getting paid for. You know, I'm getting paid for other services. I'm not getting paid for my performance at all. Um, so if running starts to feel like it's becoming less fun, and I've got a whole podcast episode on this coming out soon with a very special guest, then you need to reevaluate because I think we all need to reflect back two when we did our first marathon, two when we did our first race and think, what did I love about it then? What was the novelty that made it so fun? And I think for a lot of us, it's doing more than we thought we could do and not really caring about the data. It's that we got to run all the way to that tree this time instead of, instead of having to take three walk breaks. It's, oh my gosh, I covered a whole distance and I didn't have to take a walk break. Or it's, I got to complete this race. Or it's, I did get a little bit faster and I felt really good doing it. Um, 
make sure you're reflecting back to some of those things. Make sure you're maybe changing up your running routes. Maybe you're running without a watch. Maybe you're running with other friends um, in different places at different times of day if you can, if it's starting to feel like it's a job and it's not fun. Because remember, running is supposed to be fun. In terms of the end of my first marathon and the race in general, something that I wish I had known and something that I'm getting way better at identifying is that, again, the last 5, 10K or so of a marathon and the last like 5K of a half marathon, it's supposed to be hard. It's supposed to be hard. That part's probably not supposed to be that fun, right? That's why less than 1% of the population have completed a marathon because it's freaking hard. The training is hard. Getting to show up to the start line itself is hard. And then completing the race is hard. And that last part of the race is so hard. So if you are expecting it to just not be hard, and then it's hard because it's always hard, even if you have a really good day, you're setting yourself up for disappointment. So if you are expecting that last part of the race to be difficult, when it starts to become difficult, you can think to yourself, okay, I'm not failing. This is just supposed to be hard. Here it is. It's getting hard. Let's start, you know, powering through and using some of my tools to get through it because I am so tough. I am less than 1% of the U.S. population who is completing the dang thing. I think a lot of the times as runners, and I get caught in this trap all the time because I'm surrounded by so many awesome runners, is that we surround ourselves with awesome runners. <laughs> we surround ourselves with people who might be faster than us, people who might have been running longer than us, people who we find inspiring, probably for some of those reasons. And we forget that we are part of such a small percent of the population who actually gets up and goes for a run, let alone has completed a marathon. So if you're finding yourself comparing yourself to other people and you're like, oh, like I'm just not legit, like I'm I'm terrible, like I'm never going to be fast, I'm never going to Boston qualify, everyone's Boston qualifying or everyone's breaking three hours, four hours, five hours in the marathon, you know, everyone's just way better than me and I'm terrible, I should just quit back up a little bit, look at the big picture, get out of the forest and seeing it through the trees. <laughs> and remember that you're probably inspiring so many people that you don't even know you're inspiring just by showing up and running. And also you are just part of such a small percent of the population who is moving their bodies in a way that they enjoy, um, in a way that's challenging. And you're doing a lot of good by yourself and others doing that. So just remember that Someone is always going to be faster than you. Someone's also always going to be slower than you. Um, and that person who's slower than you isn't any better or worse than you. And that person who's faster than you isn't any better or worse than you either. You are not defined by your time and you are awesome. <laughs> so hopefully some of these takeaways were entertaining and things that you related to, um, some of these were things that were my own um, reflections, but I also got some reflections from others as well. And let me know if you guys want any more content for like beginner runners or first time marathon or half marathoners, because I honestly love talking about this. I love reflecting back to my experiences because they've really shaped me into the runner that I am today and into the... Um, you know, runner that I want to help from my own experiences, because I love this community so much. And I appreciate everything that it has done for me.
Until next time, guys, happy running. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 